0: Here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. You know, working with uh, narcissistic abuse survivors, I hear a lot of stories about uh, them being falsely medicated to the point where it created, excuse me, <clears throat> I'm having trouble with my throat today. It created um, more problems for them. Instead of helping them, many of them have been diagnosed as borderline and put on medication for it. And doctors don't really just seem to know what to do with this. So when I was offered the opportunity to interview today's special guest, Dr. Sam Zand, I really grabbed it because I want to share with you that there's other ways that the profession The psychiatric profession is really opening up to some more holistic ideas, and Dr. Zand is going to share that with us today. We're going to have a great discussion. Um, Dr. Sam Zand of the Calm Clinic is in Las Vegas, Nevada. He's on a mission to continue opening avenues towards strengthening mental health care, decreasing any perceived stigmas, improving spiritual alignment, and ultimately helping others become the best versions of themselves. Dr. Sam Zan is a compassionate psychiatrist, motivational speaker, and socially conscious business developer. He has merged his passions for mental health, performance coaching, and entrepreneurship to establish platforms that build leaders and self-healers in the community. His passion is helping his clients overcome the mental and emotional obstacles toward unlocking their peak potential. Good morning, Dr. Zand, and welcome to A Fine Time for Healing.
1: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: It is my pleasure. I'm excited to talk to you. What you call yourself a compassionate psychiatrist. What do you mean by that?
1: Sure. Now, I think in our profession, we have the privilege of really getting to know somebody in their intimate details of their life. And without compassion, it's hard to provide that sense of security and safety and trust to really be able to go to some of those places of emotional vulnerability. So uh, I think it's a priority. I mean, for me, I was blessed that I just grew up with a lot of love and compassion is part of my nature, but as a psychiatrist, I think there's always a mindful approach to lead with empathy, love, and understanding so that we can really help our patients achieve the goals they're looking for and, and not feel guarded or restricted in any way.
0: Well, that's wonderful because every psychiatrist I have ever met or visited, uh, they sit there with a stone face and it's, it's a very, very cold situation. And I always tell people, don't worry about the personality of your psychiatrist because most of them don't have any. Is there a training that you get as, as a psychiatrist that teaches you to be, to have this kind of you know, stone-faced kind of persona?
1: I hear you, yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a little bit of a kind of stereotype and stigma around psychiatrists just kind of having that cold, stoic approach and, and, you know, taking their skill set and understanding what's going on and trying to write the right medication and prescribe the right psychotherapy. But part of... Being a psychiatrist, you know, to the point of why that might happen is that sometimes showing an emotional response might elicit a little bit of a awkward feeling for somebody. So I think having a calm demeanor is very important, and to not feel reactive in any way. Part of our training is to govern our own emotional response. Uh, you can imagine when we hear about such difficult traumas at times and. Uh, We sometimes maybe even have patients who are, you know, short, rude, upset, angry. To not have that emotional response is very important. Um, So I agree with the approach in that, a friend of mine, but I think still showing empathy and love is possible without having a strong emotional response. So Mm -hmm. it's important to find the right balance in our training. It is something that we talk about generally, but perhaps not enough.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, that's really, really true. Well, thank you for sharing that because I always wondered what that was about. So would you consider yourself a holistic or an integrative psychiatrist? Or I know there's a, a bit of a difference there. Are you either one or are you sort of doing your own thing? Sure.
1: And, you know, the semantics of what does it really mean to be holistic, to be integrative, I think the best approach in psychiatry is really taking on a psychological assessment that we call – the biopsychosocial-spiritual model. And if we look at practicing medicine or practicing psychiatry from that perspective, all we're really doing is breaking the human experience down into four categories. And it's the physical, the biological part of life. And that pertains to sleep, activity, nutrition, as well as our neurochemistry and what medications we take or if we put substances in our body. And then there's the psychological part of life. And that has to do with our self stories, our limiting beliefs, our self-esteem, our confidence, our perspectives on the world around us, our perspectives on ourselves, and that's really where talk therapy comes in. And then there's the environmental factors of life. If we treated uh, mental health without paying attention to the environment, the last two years, you know, we'd be turning a blind eye to probably a very significant contributing factor if you think about COVID and social distancing and job transitions and job loss, everything that's been going on in our environment pertains to our mental health. And then finally, spiritually, answering those unexplained questions of, you know, what is this life about? Why are we here? Uh, What happens after we pass? What is the meaning and purpose that we assign to our life and the world around us? And so to answer your question, holistically, I think we all have to look at these things when we treat. And if we only look at the neurochemistry or we only look at the psychology and prescribe medication and do talk therapy, then I think we're limiting our tool set and what's available to our patients to be able to find healing, find peace, clarity, and happiness. So I, I would consider myself a holistic you know, practitioner, physician, psychiatrist um, solely because I try to look at somebody holistically and really understand what's contributing to what the symptom presentation might be, and then how can we holistically look at all these factors to treat as well. So, um, you know, some call it alternative mental health, some call it holistic. I, I hope that pretty soon there is no distinction, and it's just the way we practice.
0: Hmm. Uh, that would be wonderful. But I know things move slowly in the uh, medical world, <laughs> so I know that it takes so. a while, but, but I know you're working towards it. Um, When you do talk therapy, do you use CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy? Okay.
1: Yeah, so Cognitive Behavioral Therapy is kind of one of the most commonly used therapeutic approaches, and and there are several others. Uh, Psychodynamic therapy is the other big umbrella, and usually most therapeutic modalities fall under either Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which is changing the way we think and behave to change the way we feel, in psychodynamic therapy, which is understanding our past experiences, relationship patterns, and bringing self-awareness to how that's molded us to who we are, then being able to enact change. Um, those are the two primary umbrella modalities that we treat them.
0: So I would imagine that psychodynamic therapy would work best with the kind of clients that I see uh, who, are, who have had relationship trauma And often it goes back to childhood, yeah. So you do explore, when you have a patient like that, you do explore all of that to find out where this comes from?
1: We certainly do. And I think going back to our childhood emotions, our childhood experiences, gives us a lot of awareness, understanding, and value as to why we feel the way we feel. And as adults, sometimes we might look at a situation where we had an exaggerated emotional response And we think back, why did that happen? And if we really have self-awareness, usually it happened because this is the emotional response we've been carrying with us since childhood. And it changes and it kind of iterates over time. But if we can heal that inner child and understand where that emotion comes from, then hopefully we can also lift any blame, shame, or self-judgment away from the feeling. Because we wouldn't judge a five-year-old for feeling a certain way. We just have to soothe that inner child emotion. So going back to those early life moments I think is really important
0: in our therapeutic growth. I so agree. I find that that is really the key to most um, most people who are having these traumatic responses, that it has come from some other place and generally childhood. Generally they've just been carrying their the mechanisms that they use to survive in these environments um, but never really developed healthy ways to cope with these environments. But then as adults, they, ha- they don't have those tools. They don't have those skills, and they don't realize what they're lacking. So,
1: Correct. Um, yeah, I agree, yeah. And, and just to touch on that, it really, I think, to your point, is developed from a defense mechanism, right? And, and that innate ability to defend ourselves from an uncomfortable feeling, a difficult situation, a traumatic experience, probably at certain times it served us well, that defense mechanism. has protected us. But then we evolve, and now what ends up happening is we go to those same, uh, perhaps sometimes immature, defense mechanisms in our daily life when it's not needed or not appropriate. So then bringing that awareness to why that was happening in the beginning can help bridge that uh, understanding and, and actionable kind of methods of changing our responses. And, and So to your point, I really do think it comes from defense mechanisms. and. And that's part of the work that we do when we do talk therapy. Mm.
0: Do you see a lot of narcissistic abuse?
1: You know, I, I certainly see it happening in the community with my patients. I, don't, I think, unfortunately, one of the difficulties is that although there is more education recently, um, a lot of people who are going through this type of abuse aren't aware of it, so they're not aware to even address it in a psychiatric session and a therapeutic session. And so without uh, diving into those relationships in detail, without perhaps having the other person present to see how the interaction is, um, it might be hard. It might be overlooked. So although I, I definitely know it's present and we do talk about it, it probably happens more often than we see.
0: Definitely. Definitely. And the, um, do you work off of the DSM-5?
1: Yeah. You know, it, it, we have to, right? It's part of the way that, that we're structured. Um, but I have my own professional and personal feelings about the DSM-5 and the way that we practice psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Um, may I get into it?
0: <laughs> yes. Well, how much, how I have much time do we have? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I have my own feelings, and I talk about that a lot as well, um, because there's a lot that's missing, and... Um, And I find that um, traditional therapists, not psychiatrists, but um, psychologists, many of them really miss this diagnosis. And what happens is when they miss it, they end up shaming and blaming the victim because they're, they're asking the victim to see their part in what happened to them when there really has been no part in what happened to them. And I find that when someone comes to me, And I allow them to be, to understand their victimhood, not to become, not to take a victim mentality, but to understand this was not about them. They had nothing to do with it. That just lets so much go. Just that acknowledgement, that validation lets so much of that go. So I think that's a really important part of uh, treating people who have gone through this.
1: Yeah. And I agree. And, you know, often in my own practice, and we have a large team that we uh, have constant, you know, education and training, and part of our team philosophy is to practice caution when giving a diagnosis to a patient. Now, often the patient might say, what is my diagnosis? And so we have to go there and talk about it. But we do it gently in a way where, again, we align with the limitations and under, and, and uh, limits an understanding of psychology and human psyche. We don't fully objectively have a diagnosis for anybody. I can never say 100% that someone is, for example, bipolar. It's just a cluster of symptoms. And to your point, we go to the DSM and we try to identify the cluster of symptoms and categorize it, and we put a label on it. And we do this predominantly for the structure. Uh, of insurance and billing and being able to prescribe medication and having FDA-approved clinical trials. So although we can understand the utility, anything that has that kind of structure and rigidity probably uh, lacks some flexibility. And I think if we just jump to a diagnosis that isn't objectively true, there's no blood test, there's no imaging of the brain that we can draw from to conclude these diagnoses, It is somewhat subjective to the best of our ability. We try to make it less subjective, but then to your point, what happens? Sometimes people have their own stigma, their own set of beliefs, or they just feel that it's who they are. I am depressed. I am an anxious person, and that's just me to my core forever, and that's never the case. We're dynamic. We're evolving. We're constantly changing. Uh, Someone might have a propensity, perhaps even genetically, to feel more depressed or feel more anxious or have more of extreme lability and mood. But it certainly doesn't mean that's the presentation for the rest of their life and that's how things have to be all the time. So I think it does create a little bit of a limiting belief to tell somebody about a psychiatric diagnosis. And so we just share that, right? When we talk to our patients, we're just honest about that to say, this is what the DSM would classify as a diagnosis, but let's talk about what that means so that our patients don't feel that kind of either self-judgment or, or feel that they're being limited and put into this box or this category. The same way we would tell someone, you know, you're suffering from hypertension or diabetes, many of these illnesses are treatable and curable. So to think that now for the rest of my life I am diabetic when, in fact, I might just be able to improve my activity, improve my nutrition, and no longer be classified as diabetic, what if I inherently believe that my entire life? And so I think that's a similar caution that we should use in mental health.
0: Oh, I agree. It's, it, 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 it's very refreshing to hear you speak. Um, <clears throat> can you speak to um, the damage to the brain that, that happens from childhood emotional abuse? I know that there is um, something to do with um, overstimulation of um, of, um uh, anxiety and hormones and sure. that kind of thing that actually can cause some stunts, stunts, the brain to be stunted, I should say. Can you speak yeah. to that?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I think if you just start from putting yourself in the shoes of a child who sees the world as a scary, dangerous place, right, perhaps due to abuse or neglect or trauma, all of a sudden our reptilian brain takes over and what we're very good at as humans is that fight-or-flight response. Now, while it serves us in certain moments, perhaps we actually do need to fight or flee from a situation, most of the time we don't. And so when that becomes hardwired in our neurocircuitry from a young age, and then often reinforced by other situations, sometimes perhaps not even as severe, but because of our early experiences, we become hypersensitive to these situations, then that neurocircuitry becomes strengthened more and more. And so... From a uh, neurochemical level, you have these pathways in the brain that strengthen, and then you have these neurotransmitters that become a little off-balance. And, for example, dopamine, norepinephrine, these are the chemicals in our body that, at a healthy range, give us energy, focus. They allow us to have motivation. They push us to action. But when subject to a lot of trauma or abuse, especially from a young age, generally what ends up happening is we our body shifts, our internal pharmacy shifts, and now we have a little bit too much dopamine, a little bit too much norepinephrine. Perhaps the part of the brain that we call the the amygdala, is the fear response center of the brain, becomes a little too overactivated. And if you look at functional MRIs, for example, you might even notice too much activation in those parts of the brain. And then there's the part of the brain that makes us human, the computer processor we call the prefrontal cortex. If you look at an animal their prefrontal cortex is much smaller than a human. And what ends up happening is you think about a dog who hears a sound and he barks, right, he reacts. He doesn't take too much time to think and process and say, oh, you know what, I've heard that sound before, it's just the mailman, no problem, I don't need to bark. He just reacts. Whereas humans, we have the prefrontal cortex that allows us to process these things before we respond. For many uh, chronic kind of trauma sufferers, especially starting from childhood, What we see is a little bit of under-activation of that prefrontal cortex and too much activation of the amygdala and other parts of the brain that engage our kind of emotional uh, response. So all of that now isn't uh, irreversible. It's just, you know, an understanding of what we have to approach and what we have to tackle. So we're modern Um, medication or traditional medication tells us, okay, well, let's just knock down a little bit of these chemicals or knock down a little bit, knock up a little bit of these chemicals. There are now other approaches we're seeing and ways of uh, addressing things from an electromagnetic perspective, ways of actually improving the brain's ability to have healthier neural communication, what we call neuroplasticity. Um, So it's an exciting time in psychiatry where Previously, we would have thought, okay, you just have to do a lot of talk therapy. But sometimes there's rigidity in the brain where talk therapy becomes difficult, and you see that resistance, and it needs to be a little bit more flexibility in the brain. And that's really the uphill battle we're we're, um, dealing with when it comes to PTSD and childhood trauma.
0: Yes, it's so true. When I have um, a client who just doesn't seem to be moving along, I always recommend that they see a psychiatrist because then I, I, you know, kind of sense that it could be a chemical issue, a brain chemi- chemistry issue, and um, people are really resistant to wanting to take medication. But there's, there are some medications that, that do help. But you're saying that, are you saying that you would? Um, give that person medication for a short short period of time to reduce that activity or to simulate that activity and then move on to a different kind of approach? Or would you go right for one of the new approaches?
1: Sure. I think we have to look at every situation individually and it's hard to create an algorithmic approach for everybody. If we can customize it and really understand, again, looking at all the different factors, is this really just environmental? Is the uh, persistent trauma still present in this person's life because if it is what is the medication going to do when the external force isn't being addressed? Um, is this perhaps more just a, a kind of pattern of thinking and a lot to do with self-esteem um, and if we treat that then all of a sudden we see improvement. Now if we address all these other factors and we see that things aren't getting better then we can deduce perhaps there is a little bit of kind of neurochemistry and balance. Um, and to your, to your question, what, how would we treat that? Let's say in the event that we feel medication is appropriate, I like to use a cast analogy. If you have a fracture of a bone, you know, what do you do? You go to the doctor, they do a screening exam, and they say, let's take an X-ray. And on the X-ray, we see, okay, there's a fracture of the bone. Now we have to put a cast on it right why do we do that now the body has the ability to heal itself the bone regenerates if you literally put your arm on a table for four weeks that bone would probably heal but life gets in the way we can't put our arm on a table for four weeks so we need a little bit of structure and support and that's the cast and in this analogy i think that's the medication sometimes our neurochemistry is out of whack because of trauma because of repeated uh, behaviors and habits that have been unhealthy. And so to get a little bit of a boost provides the structure and support we need for our body and mind to heal itself. And that's the self-work that becomes so important that hopefully with professional guidance, we can move along while we have this medication giving us a little bit of support. And then, you know, in three months, six months, we revisit this. Are we feeling better? Can we remove the cast? What happens when yeah. we keep a cast on too long? Sometimes it, you know, it starts to stink, right? The flesh (laughs) isn't getting enough sun, right? Mm -hmm. So our skin becomes pale, our muscles become weak because we're not exercising them. And so we have atrophy. And if you think about that analogy, we really do want to try to remove the cast if possible so that we can build that strength up again. And that's a lot of the holistic work. So could we jump straight to the alternative medicine? I think certainly, because we're starting to learn that it's not just the neurochemistry where we need to start, it's sometimes the neurocircuitry, it's sometimes the electromagnetic activity of the brain. Um, So even from a neurological perspective, there are alternative methods to begin with at times.
0: Do you use imaging or you're just diagnosing based on what you're seeing in your client, your your patient?
1: Yeah. Many in our field have started to use imaging, things like functional MRIs. Uh, The problem is that it's not very cost effective. So really you're only able to treat the affluent that way, and that's unfortunate. I think in medicine, as a healer, we never really want to be able to save one treatment or diagnostic modality for one type of patient who can afford it. Insurance doesn't cover it right now, and it is quite costly—you know, five thousand or plus—to uh, do something like a functional MRI. So, unfortunately, while some are using it, and I think it has its benefit, it's not widely uh, approached just because it's very expensive.
0: Okay. Um, So what is the spiritual component? How do you incorporate that in your therapy?
1: Yeah. Thank you for the question because I really think that's one of the core components of how we can improve um, mental health and how we can improve our industry of psychiatry.
0: Um,
1: With our patients, we like to just open up a conversation. To say, you know, these are the four different categories of our mental health. And when it comes to the spiritual side of things, you know, those questions about humanity, those age-long questions that we all find our own truth, right? Nobody can say what is right or wrong. We all have our own belief that we hold. And we find our peace and empowerment in our perspective of these answers. So when we pose this way, we just gently bring it up. you put thought into these spiritual topics. And generally, I get a range of responses. From either, you know, yes, I think about it all the time, perhaps maybe too much, or, you know, yes, I, I follow a certain religion, or, you know, no, I grew up with a certain religion and it just, I had some kind of conflict with it, and so it's pushed me away, and whatever that spectrum of response is, we just try to meet them where they are, and our goal is never to preach anything, but to help someone explore their own intimate truths and their own perspectives of the world around them. And I think the opportunity to do that from a medical place has a lot of value because we're approaching it scientifically. Right? We're we're, we're approaching spirituality from a lens of this is where our science go, takes us, and this is where it ends. Right? And these are the questions we still don't know. So now it's up to you to figure out those answers for your own, and let's let's help you in that in that quest in that journey because it's something that we all have to eventually have that conversation with ourselves and find peace with life and death and look at things from a more empowering perspective.
0: I agree that it's a huge component of healing um, mental and emotional issues. Uh, So I get, you know, I I broach it very carefully, and I wait to broach it unless someone brings it up. Because some people really freeze when you say, you know, spiritual or religion or whatever. And they, right. they're they like, no, no, I don't believe in God. <laughs> and, and it's not really about believing in God because I'm not a God person either. I'm very spiritual, but I'm not a, a God person and, or a religious person. Um, I've created what is right for me. Sure. So I completely get so what you're saying.
1: In, in your practice, when I ask, how how are we working towards bridging that gap between the science and the spirit and, you know, creating a healthy foundation for that conversation? What have you seen that has worked and what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, first we have to get rid of the initial trauma that's making them not be able to think straight. Mm -hmm. First we have to get them to a place where they're willing to self-love and maybe do some go inside and spend some time alone with themselves because many people that come to me have never felt feelings or emotions and they, they've, they just don't know what to do with these things. They don't know what they feel like. So we have to get, we have to move that out of the way. But once people go within, once people begin to, to um, be okay with just themselves and really, thinking and, and working on themselves without all these other factors, then I always ask, you know, do you have any spiritual beliefs? What is your, you know, what, what do you believe in? And um, if somebody says to me, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, don't even go there. <laughs> yeah. Then I say, okay, well, that's your, you know, it's fine. But I do have enough, another perspective to show you if you're interested. That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, and, and I, I think
1: yeah, it really is the quickest path towards healing sometimes is to go inward and find that connectivity with the world around us and tap into that kind of collective consciousness and removing any obstacles, I agree, is the first step, right? What, right. what has gotten in the way from allowing our, our hearts and minds to open up to that possibility because You know, if somebody tells me that all of this can be proven by science, it's just not true. Even the world's greatest scientists can't answer the questions of where did this life come from? Why are we here? What's the point of all this? And that's just a, you know, philosophical question that I think we've been all reflecting on for thousands and thousands of years. And so to, to minimize that, I think, minimizes the human experience. So how can we remove the obstacles and then lean into that? Um, self-love uh, you know i love that you went there because it's really what it's all about if you can understand that your life is a miracle you are one of one there's nobody like you there's a heart beating in your chest that doesn't you don't have to ask it to continue to do that and we're all just on this spinning rock in this giant universe that we don't understand something mm-hmm. special about that
0: right there is something special um, and, yeah, that's another, uh, another thing that I try to bring up is this universal understanding that every one of us is unique. And I liken it kind of like I say, if you saw the universe as a jigsaw puzzle and every piece was a different shape, they all fit together. But there's, the picture doesn't come together unless each individual shape is part of it. And people go, oh, you know, it helps them to understand the uniqueness of who they are and the importance of their purpose in the world. So I think yes, it's very important. That. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit because I know that uh, you love to talk about um, psychedelic therapy, Psycho. Um, yeah, psycho, yeah. yeah psychedelic yeah. therapy, yeah. meaning that, you know, for those who are listening, who grew up in the sixties and seventies, like me, you know, we heard about LSD, we heard about mushrooms, we heard about all these things that were illicit drugs, and it's like, don't touch those things, but things are changing, aren't they, Dr. Zand?
1: Yes, and we are, uh, and, you know, we just co-founded a company called Better You, where we focus on alternative mental health, and one of the primary modalities is psychedelic therapy. I think the first question that we get is, you know, is that legal? Like, what, what are we talking about here, where we can actually practice psychedelics in medicine? And the reason I think this has come to uh, a real big buzz in our industry is that just two years ago, there was an FDA approval for a form of ketamine, s ketamine for treatment resistant depression. And every time the FDA gets behind something, then all of a sudden the, you know, physicians and the medical community starts to build acceptance. Ketamine's been on the market for 50 years and some consider it a pseudo-psychedelic. At high doses, it does really have psychedelic properties. And in addition to ketamine being on the market for so long and being more recently accepted and used in mental health, we have many traditional psychedelics that you think of from the 60s and 70s actually in the pipeline in clinical studies, uh, which will hopefully very soon also be FDA approved. We have MDMA in Phase 3 clinical trials being studied for things like PTSD. We have psilocybin, which has gained a lot of popularity recently in the healing community. It's actually, I believe, in Phase 2 now being studied for things like depression. Um, And even down the pipeline, people are doing studies with LSD. And I think the effort to get behind this from the medical community has so much benefit for uh, being able to treat mental health because we're doing it from a controlled, safe, secure setting. It's often done in the office. There are different modalities. Ketamine, we're actually doing at-home treatments. But you know, to have the medical community have the clinical trials, the evidence-backed research, and the understanding of how do we use these delicate molecules to help someone to go inward and to find their own kind of peace in their journey. Uh, all of that, the more scientific approach we can have to it, the better. Um, so I am really excited about this industry right now. And there's so much to talk about.
0: What, is, um, what exactly is ketamine? Is that um, a natural Psychedelic, is this, does that come from nature, or is that a, uh, a, a man-made thing?
1: So, so ketamine is man-made. It was originally made uh, as a dissociative anesthetic. And so we were looking for a, re- a better replacement for operations, procedures, surgeries, you know, than what we had back then, um, which really was just kind of high-dose antipsychotics. This was around the same similar time that opiates came around as an anesthetic. Um, and what they found out that while they used ketamine at really high doses for things like operations and surgeries on the battlefield, all of a sudden we had soldiers who were being treated where their PTSD, and we didn't really have a strong understanding of PTSD, but their stress seemed to go down. And their ability to cope with what they had just handled, uh, just gone through on the battlefield, improved. So then psychologists and psychiatrists got wind of this medication and said, let's start testing this and let's start saying, can this help people in their mental health if they're feeling overly anxious? Uh, Back then we would call it hysteria. And they started to see the early evidence was, yes, this was helping in some profound way. Now, although it started that way, um, we've gotten to a point where we can understand that lower doses, it has a lot of healing powers where we become dissociated from our emotional rigidity in life. We often have these same kind of thoughts, beliefs, feelings that we cycle through and they become strengthened over time. And when we're on ketamine, it decreases that uh, emotional rigidity. It decreases the kind of background chatter, some call it our ego or our subconscious feelings, so that we can have a little bit more clarity. And in that just 45 minutes to one hour when you're on ketamine, you have that psychological experience. And then you also have an increased neuroplasticity, where your brain becomes more flexible. And that's what psychedelics as an entire class of medications share, is the ability for the brain to create new, healthier neural pathways and overcome mm. some of that previous neural activity.
0: That sounds really exciting. Now, are we talking about microdosing or full-blown, you know, the only word I know is tripping, yeah. <laughs> where you go, you know, <laughs> sure. you have the full experience um, sure. Or and and anything in between, how, is it, how yeah. is it actually used?
1: So there's a spectrum, and because this is such a new science, uh, what we have to lean on is the FDA-approved S-ketamine. And in that context, we would probably call it micro or moderate dosing, where we start from a low dose just to make sure that they feel safe and comfortable, and then we go up to maybe a moderate dose where they actually feel a little bit of dissociation, they might have a slight out-of-body experience, uh, certainly a different perspective on their own life. Now, the fun part about this is all of this is being trialed and studied to figure out what is the appropriate application. And a lot of the evidence shows that at what we would call a macro dose or a hero dose, you know, a very high dose, we start to open up new healing properties um, versus if we just microdose. And so we start to see that perhaps for certain illnesses, Uh, When we talk about, you know, the possibilities in the future, and I hesitate to use the word illnesses, but a cluster of symptoms, um, you know, for severe depression, severe anxiety, PTSD, some people are studying this for Alzheimer's and dementia, some people are studying uh, eating disorders, there's a whole kind of myriad of um, options of how we can use this and right now is the time to figure it out. What we do in our practice is we start with a low-dose ketamine, and then we graduate them up to a very high dose with an eye mask on and sound healing music. They sit in the comfort of their own home with the peer support and online safety guidance from our provider team. And when they go into the high dosage range, often people talk about a little bit of visual distortion, hallucination, time distortion, and you really go on this inward journey that can become very therapeutic, while, you know, augmented with our therapy guidelines. So a lot of care that's going into this, and we're really figuring it out. With ketamine, we seem to have understood that the full spectrum has utility from kind of mild to moderate.
0: And safety and support is very important when someone is going through this kind of experience because otherwise it can be very frightening to some people. Can't it?
1: Absolutely, yeah. And uh, that's one of our most commonly asked questions is, you know, what, am I going to have a bad trip? You know, what happens if things go awry? And generally, I think the uh, majority of people who go through these treatments feel some slight euphoria. They feel some slight relaxation. But it is very possible to experience some uncomfortable feelings as well. And there's, a you know, the popular term, set and setting, I think it's all about the mindset, the environment, and our intentions surrounding the treatment. And so to cultivate that, uh, a healthier mindset and a, secure environment, we do start with that low dose. We make sure that we have someone in the room that they feel comfortable with so that if they start to feel a little bit out of control or dissociated in a way that scares them, you know, their loved one can kind of bring them back, comfort them, and guide them. Um, Having a healthy body and mind going into these experiences is very important. If someone is acutely abusing substances or in a very unhealthy environment, they're likely to have a bad trip, and so we have to curate uh, all of those factors in, in a way that makes it as healthy as possible.
0: Right. Okay. <clears throat> so you take all that into consideration before you're putting them on these medications. How long does a does a full blown trip last? How long does that experience last?
1: Yeah, and that's the real benefit of ketamine is that it has a very short duration, what we call a half life, where for some people, it lasts only 30, 45 minutes, usually at the max, maybe an hour, hour and a half. Most people feel back to normal around two hours afterwards. Oh, um, really? And that short duration yeah, it has, it has a lot of function because you're not tripping for four or five, six hours like you might on psilocybin and OSD. Now, there are some companies who are creating formulations of psilocybin and OSD to try to test on and um, decrease the half-life, decrease the duration so that... Maybe you can go to a therapist's office, have a one- or two-hour experience, and then, you know, with a ride home, kind of not have that linger for the rest of your day.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would imagine that the, the length of the experience is, you know, for me, like thinking about it, thinking about going through that experience for six hours is, in, you know, scary. Uh, that, would, that, sure. would, that would be kind of a scary thought, but an hour mm-hmm. or two you know, if you know something's going to be over in an hour, then you can relax and enjoy it more, I would think. Yeah,
1: and to, to speak to that fear, you know, there's a lot of Hollywood shamans and right, underground healers who, you know, I'm sure there's some good being done in those communities, but I would feel scared having to go to somebody's house or basement and, you know, practice some kind of ayahuasca or ibogaine treatment, uh, DMT, these are things that we know have healing properties, but we quite don't know how to use or utilize yet. And so mm-hmm. although cultures, of, you know, ancient civilizations have their shamans and their gurus that have, you know, years and years of experience, I think the scientific community, the more we can understand it and create a very safe and controlled setting for somebody, it decreases some of that fear as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the ay- ayahuasca experience um, starts off where you don't feel well. You feel sick sometimes. <laughs> Isn't that true? Yeah. yeah? You get sick, kind
1: yeah, of sick yeah. to your stomach first? Yeah, yeah. They, and, you know, nausea is possible because a lot of these substances are dealing with serotonin. Uh, serotonin is a happy chemical. And when they, we have an abundance of it, sometimes we have this psychedelic experience. Um, but we also have serotonin receptors in our gut in our GI system. And so when those are activated, it can cause nausea and it can make us feel sick similar to why a lot of these antidepressants over time make us sick. Now these are medications we take every single day versus with psychedelics. We talk about taking it maybe once a week, uh, maybe twice a week for some who really need it. And then, you know, it's four to eight treatments and revisit how that, how that went. And hopefully we find the therapeutic growth we're looking for. And then every now and then maybe we get a reset, a touch up. But it's certainly not something that we'd want to do daily or anything like that.
0: So, It used to be that, in order to use these, use like ketamine um, and other psychedelics, you had to go through you had to go through a clinical trial. So, is that still going on, or do you do you have to go through a clinical trial to use this, or is has ketamine been approved for use from um, doctors?
1: Sure. Uh, So, ketamine is really that medication that's been on the market for 50 years that any doctor could have prescribed. However, 20 years ago, psychiatrists weren't using it because we didn't have enough understanding about it. A lot of anesthesiologists and pain doctors opened up infusion clinics where legally you go in and they give you an IV of ketamine and you sit there and you have your experience and you go home. Very little mental health guidance. Um, So what's happening now is you can actually, you know, go to our website, for example, betteryoucare, com and sign up, see your psychiatrist online, have the medication delivered to your home, and through our safety and therapeutic guidelines, have your transformative experience in the comfort of your home, own home. Uh, you don't need any kind of clinical trial. This is fully prescribable and legal. Um, and now the standard of care is there because it has been, similarly FDA-approved for these reasons. Um, so while that's true to ketamine, we're not, there quite, we're not quite there with psilocybin and some of these other formulations. Um, but very soon, I think in just the next one to two years, we'll be prescribing NDMA. Uh, just two to three years, we'll be prescribing psilocybin. And you won't need to sign up for one of those special clinical trials. You could just go to your normal doctor psychiatrist.
0: Hmm. What is, okay, so I'm looking at this. MDMA was is called um, the the common name is ecstasy.
1: Yeah, the kids call it Molly, right? Ecstasy Molly, usually right. incorporates. Okay. <laughs> ecstasy usually incorporates a little bit of a stimulant like a methamphetamine, and they combine that with MDMA. Um, and traditionally, you have probably heard of it as a, a party drug, right? And we haven't actually had a medical indication for MDMA until recently. Now we're doing the clinical trials. If you can think of uh, anecdotally what MDMA does for somebody, it generally causes them to feel less guarded and increases their ability to feel both receive and give love. I think a lot of that emotional rigidity, that background chatter, what we call the default mode network, those constant kind of ruminating thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that are hardwired in our brain. When that goes down, what are we left with? And I think that has a lot to do with the human experience. Right? We all have that commonality of love, compassion, community. Sometimes it gets stifled by past experiences and it becomes hardwired in their circuitry. So MDMA has the capacity for us to just drop a lot of that uh, guarded nature. And, and because of that, it's helping people with PTSD, and I think the clinical trials are showing a lot of positive response. And hopefully soon the FDA will approve it for that utility.
0: So once, so once the MDMA wears off, do they still have that experience of being more open and more loving?
1: Right. So the neurochemistry uh, shift is you know, pretty abrupt. And generally afterwards, while we're tapering back to our normal life, we still feel that. Uh, perhaps not as strongly. However, going through the experience, I think what people end up relating, especially with ketamine, and I'm sure the similar uh, evidence will come out with MDMA, is you've all of a sudden got to see life from a different perspective. And then you realize when people say there's a choice, right? we can choose the way we feel sometimes by choosing our thoughts and choosing our actions. It all comes together. And CBT, uh, therapy, that, know they might have gone through in the past starts to click i just felt such a strong sense of love why wouldn't i want that in my day-to-day life let me start to really dive deeper into this therapy stuff right Mm. because people are telling me this is possible and so i think just going through that and experiencing that vacation from themselves to see that that's possible often they come out of it continuing those thoughts and behaviors in a way that's very healthy
0: that sounds so wonderful, and, and yeah, I can understand how that would be true. It opens up their mind to a thought process that they, or perspective that they would not have otherwise considered or had a difficult time trying to right. embrace, right? Yeah, right? yeah, and sometimes so, you
1: just need to experience it and just know that it's possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people could use that. <laughs> it, would, right. um, it would really help a lot of people. So um, what, is, what are the side effects? In other words, can there be any permanent damage done by using these yeah. medications?
1: Sure, let's talk about that. So there's short-term potential side effects, and then your question was also the long-term health risks. The short-term side effects, we certainly know there are a handful that are possible, um, usually at lower doses, they're not very common. But the things that I tell my patients to look out for are, are one, we talked about nausea or upset stomach, it's very possible, and sometimes just prophylactically we can take an anti-nausea medication like Zofran or Ondansetron. Um, two, you're going to likely have this dissociative feeling, and you're more in your mind than in your body. So specifically, the ketamine, which is the legally prescribed, uh, prescribable medication. That dissociative feeling that draws you away from your body leaves you physically weak. And so you don't want to get up. You don't want to walk around. That's why having peer support is very important, having somebody there in case you need to get up so that you don't fall. Um, Because you're dissociated a little bit, sometimes people, in addition to physical weakness, feel lightheadedness or dizziness if possible. And sometimes they might feel a little bit of anxiety. And um, that generally has a lot more to do with our mindset and our environment going into the session. But if we feel a little overly anxious, we combat that with just deep breathing, meditative exercises, and really the preparation is more important uh, in that regard. Other than that, there's a temporary increase in blood pressure, usually about 10 to 20 points. So in somebody who's otherwise healthy, it's not a concern. Even if they have a little bit of high blood pressure, if it's controlled with medication or if it's not too high, this is not a long-term problem. It's just a short-term side effect. Now, to get to the long-term health risk, The the safety and efficacy of the clinical trials for S-ketamine showed that once a week, twice a week, after a year, we didn't see any long-term health risks. Um, If we abuse the medication and use it at too high of a dose or too often, like daily use, then we might start to notice some problems uh, in different areas and blood pressure is one of them because if we're constantly getting a short-term increase in blood pressure, that becomes a long-term increase. The other is effects on the bladder, uh, interstitial cystitis, and other things like that. Again, this is from abuse of these medications. Now, the the clinical uh, safety and efficacy data isn't as widespread and obviously not FDA-approved yet for some of these other medications, but you can think about similarities to ketamine because of uh, the similar properties that they have.
0: What about psychosis? Can it induce psychosis? Uh, Certainly. You know, like a permanent permanent state of it?
1: Yeah, and I've seen in my psychiatric practice anecdotally people come in and say, you know, I've been abusing LSD for years and I think I'm schizophrenic now. Um, Psychosis is just like many different, you know, quote-unquote diagnoses in mental health. It's a little bit difficult for us to understand. Generally, it's too much dopamine. And so these medications, when they cause the solution, it's already feeling and we feel temporary symptoms of psychosis, right? We are out of touch with reality. Can that continue and persist? Some people have said that even just you know kind of one bad trip can leave you there for a while. Um, but I think when you're in a controlled and healthy setting, we're less concerned about just the one bad trip. It's really abuse that we see have a long-term health risk. And so if you're using LSD every day and every day you're out of touch with reality and your neurochemistry is being modified in a very extreme way on a daily basis, Certainly, that can lead to long-term problems, and I think those can be one of them. So this is why, hopefully, modern science will catch up. We'll do the trials. We'll understand the safety more and more, as we have been. And then when it's ready for the public, we'll do it in a very controlled manner.
0: Yeah, and the message that I hear from you over and over is that you really need to be with a professional, and you need to go slow. You don't just all okay. of a sudden dive into taking one of these things. So for anybody that's listening, if you have the opportunity to uh, take a psychedelic medication or like, try psychedelic therapy, um, it's best not to do that until you've experienced it, you know, had a doctor guide you through it. Are, are are many doctors, um, many psychiatrists offering this kind of therapy or is this kind of a rare thing?
1: Yeah, it is kind of rare right now. Um, you know, you might be able to find a ketamine infusion clinic in in a big city, but the prices are generally high, and that's an obstacle. Uh, often, we pay seven hundred fifty dollars for a treatment. They come in packages of a few thousand dollars, you know, for four treatments or so. And so, you can, you can certainly find an infusion clinic. I think more and more psychiatrists should start to practice and learn more about this modality, but. Where do they learn? And that becomes a difficulty. In our residency training, we didn't learn anything about psychedelic therapy. Um, I'm involved with the local residency program here at UNLV, and we're trying to find a very thoughtful and structured approach to adding psychedelic therapy to the curriculum. In fact, we're starting some of the residents to rotate through our offices so that they can gain experience with F-ketamine, with with the ketamine treatments that we're doing in office. So the more practice we get, I think it's important um, in our training, uh, the more general education and curriculum. But, no, it's not being widely used just yet. And so there are some companies Mm -hmm. that have found a way to do it, and and that's really what we're trying to pioneer as well, is to have that experience at home in a safe-controlled way.
0: So you're located in Las Vegas, Nevada, right?
1: Yeah, that's our base headquarters. We do a lot of telemedicine, so we are nationally available. Um, but we are headquartered in Las Vegas, where I say it's kind of the mental health capital of the world. And if we can heal Vegas, we can heal the world. So that's where we're starting.
0: Really? So you do do tele- telehealth?
1: Yes. Yeah, we're in, currently in over 20 states. And so because of you know the changing landscape in telemedicine due to COVID and everything, the services have become very accessible, um, you know, more widely. If you live in a rural town, no chance you would find someone who would, could help you with ketamine therapy. Um, but now you can just log on, you know, see your online psychiatric provider and be seen from home.
0: And how would one get a hold of that substance to use? Would you have yeah. it mailed to the, to the person, to your patient?
1: Correct. So... For example, you know, if you went to um, our service, betteryoucare.com, you would see a psychiatric provider, and then if deemed a candidate, we would make sure that there's no reasons why you shouldn't use treatment, for example, uh, uncontrolled cardiovascular risk. If there are no problems and we see that you're a good candidate, then we prescribe the medication to one of our partner pharmacies that delivers it to the home. And we deliver okay. it in a very low low quantity just to make sure that you know, people aren't abusing it and they're using it the right way. And we prescribe it once or twice a week.
0: Are you using um, pharmacies that do compounding and specialized pharmacies or just the regular yeah, CVS cool, cool. and... Uh... So it's just it's specialized. Yeah, the right, yeah.
1: <laughs> most it's mostly specialty pharmacies and compound pharmacies. The the local CVS, you know, they they're limited and, and they're kind of creative medications, <laughs> but they're usually partnered up with a specialty compound pharmacy as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So we talked about a lot. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us as we come to a close?
1: Yeah, I think you know really appreciating the spiritual element of medicine is important. I think that's where our conversation started and perhaps where we should conclude where, you know, the, the essence of humanity is, is something that I think has not been focused on enough in medicine. We focus on the body, we focus on the you know, physical health, but are we focusing on our spiritual health? And to be able to tap into that, you know, a lot of people can use different outlets own, you know, religious congregation—the right? church, the temple—they can use nature and just to appreciate life in a very miraculous way. They can go inward and find the beauty of their own, you know, cellular biology, quantum physics. There are so many applications, and so I think for us all to be able to find our own approach to understand life and to understand the limitations of life—it's a huge component of medicine that. I'm glad you and I both share you know this journey to help our, our clients. Um, I think we all should just try to incorporate that more and psychedelic therapy really is one of the ways to bridge I think the modern medicine with more of a traditional spiritual
0: alignment. And spirituality doesn't have to be so woo-woo it can be <laughs> Correct. some of it, some of it can be that you know cosmic ethereal state or it can be the scientific approach through quantum yeah. theories and, and that kind of thing, because um, that takes you to a similar place. But um, for those people who feel more comfortable with the scientific approach, that's probably a good way for them to go. So that means that there's spirituality for everybody.
1: For everybody. It's just the belief that there's something bigger than ourselves. Right. And that might be a belief in our family you know, and then the belief in our community or really anything we want to uh, align our energy with. And something that's just not focused on self, you know, and I think that is a very uh, simple spiritual approach on life. And hopefully, you know, our next conversation in the future, we'll be able to talk more about how a lot of these medications can unlock that healing.
0: Something not focused on the self. That's really, really important. I just wanted to repeat that. So anything that takes us out of our self-focus. Right. That's what it right. is, and, right? To a, to another yeah. to a to a different kind of um, a different kind of belief system, or um, or inspiration, or or whatever that is. That we can just say, all right, there's more than just me here. Right. There's more than just at me.
1: the end of the day, isn't that the truth? Right, we're all kind of connected in this in this lifespan of you know trying to figure it out together. Nobody's alone. And I think that human connectivity is something in this day and age that we should all be focusing more on rather than the social distancing and the division <laughs> among society.
0: Oh, my gosh. When is that going to come back? <laughs> mm. well, it,
1: was a, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much yeah. for having me.
0: It was, yeah, it was a pleasure chatting with you, too. Thank you for all that in information that you gave us because um, I know a lot of people are getting excited by hearing that, so I appreciate it. And if um, and if anything, if there's any new breakthroughs or anything that you want to share, I'd love to have you back. So just let me know.
1: Thank you so much. We'll do that.
0: You're welcome. Okay, have a it's great a day. Take care. All right. Okay.
1: You take
0: care. Bye bye.